Well, we come now uh, once again to another difficult text in the gospel according to Luke. Um, There are many times uh, when you might have uh, endeavored, especially now at the beginning of the year, to go and read through the Bible uh, with as much uh, speed and endurance as you can muster. Uh, Possibly you've made it all the way through to the end of the year uh, and you've, uh, let's say, learned many new things, right? But sometimes uh, on a plan like that, reading through the Bible, uh, there are certain sections that you will have read with your eyes, but uh, if your mind was asleep or if it was too early in the morning or uh, possibly if you were speed reading for you missed a day, uh, some verses escape your notice. And this text in Luke uh, often stands out to me as one of those verses. I remember uh, the first time I read the words and I, I read them again. And I read them again, and I said, wow, I've never seen this in all the scripture before. Then I looked in Matthew and in Mark, and they don't record this kind of stuff. So we want to understand with with texts like this that stand out and seem strange to us, that don't really seem to have much to do with Jesus or much to do with his salvation, uh, what they can teach us. Uh, Because the author, Luke, puts them in for a reason, and we ought to learn from him uh, what what that reason might be. the, the title for our study tonight is What Suffering Points To. What Suffering Points To. And we see in, in these five verses, these really short verses, really part one of a two-part answer that Jesus is going to provide to the question of suffering. Uh, in the first uh, section, uh, you will find the, the word that we have read tonight, verses one through five, is Jesus addressing the question of suffering as it was presented to him. Uh, And then in the next section, verses 6 through 9, you're going to see that Jesus, and we'll get to that next week, you're going to see Jesus turn and address the angle of suffering, particularly as it relates to the Israelite people. Uh, But this first question, uh, Luke is going to include to first lift it up to our minds, and then we will ponder all that it means this week. And then next week we will turn and ask the question, what does it mean at that point in time in redemptive history? So what does suffering point to? I think uh, one of the ways we can answer that question is by acknowledging that worldview is everything. Worldview is everything. You are always, in taking information around you with your senses and and reading articles and listening to podcasts and listening to music, you're in taking all kinds of information on a regular basis, and you're always trying to interpret that information as best as you are able to. Now, something uh, we know in the modern world, especially with much communication, is that people can look at the same two events and interpret them in vastly different kinds of ways. So we can conclude a number of things. One is that there are, in fact, multiple valid and equally viable interpretations to events that we see around us. Or we can conclude that there are many interpretations, but there is only one real right seeing of the world as it is. That is the question of worldview. And you might know or not know what your worldview is. Uh, The reality is whether you know it or don't know it, every one of us does have a worldview that we use as a lens of looking to the world around us. But worldview is everything, and particularly worldview matters when we come to questions that force us to answer them. There are some things which you can look at, you can ponder, and you don't need an answer for. Uh, For instance, uh, you can watch television. You can watch a show. You can understand a character and a plot. And there are many things that you can miss and it won't affect your life 
or your understanding of the world around you or your quality of living, none of that will really matter. You could miss something, not have to interpret it, and be fine. But there are some questions that just beg to be answered. And they beg to be answered because you and I as humans are created and designed and fashioned in such a way that we can't not answer certain questions. These kinds of questions, especially as we live in the world around us, and especially as Luke now lifts to our mind, uh, is how do we account for suffering? How do we account for suffering? Now, it might seem strange in, in the flow of Luke's gospel why, why he's getting to this unique theological point, the problem of suffering, the problem of tragedy. Uh, but I think that Luke does it in the flow of logic in his whole gospel, uh, which, is, which is meant uh, to help us keep eternity in mind. That's kind of the thrust of the last verses we've just turned from, and now he's going to turn and help us to look at eternity once again, uh, but now with a different means of understanding. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I just would like to, to put in your mind is that suffering, while a problem for us and a problem in the first century, is not a problem that any of us can really escape. Um, and worldview really does make a difference for how you go through suffering. You can consider, for example, uh, the Berger family. I don't know if you know who the Berger family is, uh, but the Berger family was an ideal American family. Both uh, husband and wife had amazing jobs. They had healthy children. They had everything they could want. House was paid off. They had the perfect life. And that was until Catherine Berger, the wife, uh, was diagnosed with a rare genetic condition. That rare genetic condition led her to a spiraling series of questions. Bad diagnosis after bad diagnosis, depleting financial resources to pay for the medical treatment necessary, uh, no real option because if the medical treatment wasn't paid, then life would be terminated and quality of life would rapidly decrease. And nevertheless, with the spending of resources and money, quality of life continued to decrease because there's only so much we can do to really alleviate suffering. And in the period of time of that tragedy, worldview really does matter. And for the Berger family, that was particularly important because first the wife and then the husband had to wrestle with, well, how do I, as an atheist, deal with the fact that I am suffering in this world? And how do I deal with the fact that that suffering feels wrong or broken or like it shouldn't be this way? Because if you have an atheistic worldview, if you have a Darwinian worldview of evolution and progress over time, well, suffering isn't the abnormal thing. Suffering is actually the means and the vehicle through which progress occurs. So how can it feel wrong if it's part and parcel of the creation of the world and the unfolding of the world? But nevertheless, as atheists, they recognize that suffering just could not be answered sufficiently in a way that they could find rest and comfort and, and trust in uh, through their atheistic worldview. They just couldn't do it. So first the wife, and then much to the husband's dismay, uh, the husband became believers. Because as they wrestled with the question of suffering, they recognized that the worldview which they had going into the suffering was insufficient to answer the questions which suffering presented. And they recognized that in a godless worldview, there really is no hope in tragedy. There really is no answer to the problem of suffering. But through Christ, as a faithful savior, they both met Jesus and they both were alivened to him. And now they would both say, looking back on the suffering, and by the way, still going through the suffering, she's still alive and still suffering immensely every day at the hands of her condition. They would both say, neither of them, if given the opportunity, would ever change the suffering that she has had to endure. Because they have found something sweeter 
than comfort and physical uh, alleviation from pain in this life. They have found something sweeter. And they've recognized that this life and this existence cannot be all that there is because of suffering. And so they wouldn't change it, but worldview really does matter for that, you see, because if you're an atheist going into suffering, well, this is life for millions of years as we have known it, and the universe doesn't care, the atoms don't care, and you are just part of this cosmic machine that is going through this and everyone experiences it, so just get over it. But every human knows that that is not an answer. That is not an answer to the problem of suffering. And so worldview really does matter. I wonder if you've ever wrestled with that kind of a question. What is your worldview? Perhaps you have suffered. Perhaps you know someone who's suffered. Perhaps you know someone who's currently suffering. Perhaps you are currently suffering. Suffering can take so many different forms. It doesn't have to just be some tragic death, although it can be. It could be the regular suffering of not knowing uh, what, what is your purpose in life? What place do you have in this world? It can be the regular suffering of not feeling like you are known. It can be a, a small, chronic, slow kind of suffering. It can be a cataclysmic, tragic suffering that persists with you your whole life. Everyone has experienced suffering, either themselves or through relatives and through relationships. And so I wonder, do you have an answer that can really answer the problem of suffering? And if you're a Christian, do you know what that answer is? So what is suffering and what is it that suffering points us to? Before uh, we turn then to a series of answers which we're going to explore, I want to first uh, give you a brief sketch of where we're going to go. So in Luke's text, he's going to first lift our minds to the problem of suffering. And then Jesus is going to give us kind of a brief answer that if we just read and we glance over and we don't ponder, uh, we would be tempted to uh, feel insufficiently answered when we come away from verse 5. But I want to show you how this is a developing thought and a sufficient answer to the question as Jesus answers it. And then I want to observe a little bit uh, how in this world today, as you and I live and breathe and have our being, we are regularly deceived from asking the kinds of questions that Jesus points us to when suffering occurs. And then I want to talk a little bit about, well, if we are believers, if we are in Christ, uh, what is suffering all about and uh, why can we find comfort in it? And that might shock you, but hold on for the ride. We will get there. So, uh, what does suffering point to? Let's look first at the question which is raised in verse 1. Uh, Luke tells us that there are some present who bring to mind to Jesus uh, a recent tragedy which has occurred. This is referred to in verse 1. Uh, they refer to these Galileans who Pilate has mixed with the blood of the sacrifices of Passover. So Pilate, remember he's the ruler over the Jewish people, uh, and the mixing of blood with sacrifices is an idiom or a, a slang saying for Pilate killed them at the time that they were offering sacrifices. Now, that, uh, you could take this a lot of ways. You could say, well, it sounds like Pilate killed them and then mixed their blood with the blood of the animal sacrifices. That is, is not what the text means. The text means that as they were going to offer sacrifices to let the blood loose from the sacrifices in, in worship to God, Pilate seizes them on the way and kills them in place of the sacrifice blood. So they weren't ever able to offer their sacrifices. And, and here's the question which is begging to be answered in this situation. If God loves his people so much, if he really has a warm affection in his heart for the Jewish nation, 
And he really has preserved his temple and protected worship and instituted the priesthood and instituted the sacrificial system. How can that God, being sovereign over all other things in the world, allow his faithful people as they go to worship him to be killed on the way by a wicked ruler who would have no, worse, who would have no benevolence towards them? How is it that God would allow his people to die while they are worshiping him? How is that possible? And now here is a, here's a legitimate question that we can ask ourselves because we can ask that question in 21st century language as well. We can ask the question, how is it that if God loves his people so much, people die in tragic car crashes on the way to church? How is it that if God loves his people so much that sometimes churches get shot up by gunmen? How is it that if God loves his people so much, he cannot protect them even while they are worshiping him as their Lord and Savior? How is it that if God loves his people, missionaries are routinely killed by the very people they are trying to reach for the gospel. If God loves his people, wouldn't he protect them from such suffering? This is the question which is brought to the mind of Jesus. And Jesus answers this question in a rather strange way. In verse 2, he says this, Do you think that it is the case that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans? because they suffered this way. So here's the question. Do you think that their sin was worse or that they were particularly horrible sinners because of the way they died and the manner of their death? And now he's gonna answer it in verse three, no. He's gonna answer his own question, no. But I say to you, unless you repent, you will all die in the same way. Now here's, here's a problem. These people come to Jesus and they ask him a legitimate question brought up by a legitimately difficult situation. And it seems as though Jesus has passed the baton away from himself, not really answered the question, and simply gone back to his main point, which he's kind of been going on and on about in the last couple of verses, that you need to settle your account with God Almighty before the judgment day. Right, you remember the last couple of weeks uh, we were reading, and particularly last week we read about his, his uh, encouragement and his exhortation to the people if you have a debt, settle with your accuser before he drags you before the judge. And then you might naturally conclude, well, if, you have, if I have to settle with my accuser before I meet the judge, what happens if I die before meeting the judge? And if I die in a worse way, does that mean I was a worse sinner? Right? These are natural questions which kind of flow out of the, the logic that Jesus is putting forward. And now the question gets brought up and Jesus answers it. And it seems like he says, I'm not talking about that, but remember you have to be reconciled to your accuser. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But Jesus isn't being so callous when he's answering this question because he's really in a very uh, strange sort of events, answering the question in its most direct way. Suffering points to the fact that this world is not our final resting place. Suffering draws our minds and our realities and our worldview into question in light of eternity. What does suffering point to? Suffering points to the need to be reconciled to your creator. In verse 4, they're going to propose a different question, but it's not now the people asking the question. It's now Jesus answering a second scenario which he himself raises. So he doesn't think the first question was hard enough. He's going to bring another situation to bear and then answer that one as well. 
And he says, or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell upon them. Do you think that they were worse offenders or worse debtors than all those who live in Jerusalem? So a tower falls seemingly at random on people who are just existing in the city. And nonetheless, not any city, the holy city, God's city, a tower falls and kills these people. And now the question, is that a sign of God's wrath poured out on these people in a particular way that they were worse sinners than other sinners are? And he answers the question in the same kind of way. No, but I say to you, if you do not repent, all will likewise perish. So Jesus has raised two scenarios, first by an outside group, now by himself. And then he answers both scenarios essentially with analogous phrases. If you look there in the text, verse 3 and verse 5 are almost parallel. Verse 3 says, he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, that is exactly the same as in verse 5, you will all likewise perish and you will all likewise perish. Verse 3 and 5, same answer to the question. So Jesus thinks that scenario in verse 1 is uh, answered in the same way that the scenario in verse 4 is answered. So the question is, what's, what's the, he, what he's saying is, no suffering, no suffering really escapes this kind of category. Suffering from wicked people afflicting their wickedness on innocent people, like Pilate killing the Jews as they go to sacrifice, or suffering from seemingly strange, maybe divine events, and killing people seemingly at random, a hurricane, a tornado, an earthquake, destroying villages and leveling towns, those actually both point to the same reality, which is that suffering cannot be answered by the problem of wickedness in the heart of the sinner or the person who has suffered, but suffering is a means to see eternity. So here is what Luke puts before us. And now here, let's, uh, let's take a look at the, the problems and the addresses that Jesus puts before us. So Jesus is going to answer the question of suffering, not with a treatise, not with a, a book reference, not with, not with a long discourse on the intricacies of the problem or anything like that. He's going to answer the problem by showing us that suffering is a means to lift our eyes away from this world. We can consider then the fact that while you and I encounter suffering in our daily life, uh, in, our, in our livelihoods, we regularly experience suffering and pain and, and the brokenness of this world. And Jesus says all of that is meant to lift you and I up to eternity. Not, not any moment in eternity, but specifically our final place in eternity. And the need to repent and believe and be rescued from the possibility of eternal death. This is the same exhortation he has just left with uh, in chapter 12. So suffering calls us to repentance. Now you might be saying, well, that is not really an answer to the question of suffering. And I would counter with, yes, it is, and let me show you. So one of the things that we experience in this world is regular, regular suffering. But in the West in particular, and in developed countries, uh, it's not pure, unadulterated suffering on a regular basis. In the West, we experience a medicated kind of suffering. Uh, and uh, it's because the West doesn't want us lifting our eyes up and asking hard questions about reality. It's only in a world that believes in atheism that you would need to do away with the problem of suffering 
because suffering is always snapping you out of reality, the reality which has been crafted for you, and drawing you to a deeper reality, which is the real reality. So tragedy calls us to wake up and stop sleeping and pay attention to what's really true. So in the Western world where atheism and nihilism and things like that abound, the only way to have those worldviews propagate themselves is to build vast medical empires, to have amazing access to resources and comforts, and to sell people the vision that the richer you are, the more wealthy you are, the more uh, learned you are, the more advanced you are, the less and less suffering really becomes a problem. And that is true until, until you have someone who's a sinner and a wicked person who decides to kill people even in that sophisticated society. Uh, you have someone uh, like a Ted Bundy who seems to snatch people from their suburban livelihoods and kill them and brutalize them on the way. And now you have a problem on your hands, which is that suffering is now once again in the limelight. Or you have a society built around the idea that we are in control of nature until an earthquake strikes. And now we are left to pick up the pieces and the reality that the earth is just bigger than anything humans can create. And we are really a part of creation, not lords and gods over creation. So suffering brings us to this reality. And this reality is important. The reality of suffering is important because it begins to level our worldview and ask the question, does this hold up? Does this hold up? When I was in uh, middle school science class, uh, it wasn't really science class yet because we were just learning basics about science. But one of the things we did at the end of the year as a final project is we built these bridges out of marshmallows and spaghetti. And you might have done something similar with spaghetti and tape or some iteration of this. And one of the things you do is after you construct this marshmallow tower, spaghetti tower, or bridge, you would have to then test the strength of your particular tower. And everyone in the class and their groups would go one after the other. And the teacher would put maybe first a tissue paper on top of it, and then maybe a small pencil or maybe an eraser, or a graphing calculator, or maybe if it held up, a textbook. And over and over and over until the eventual collapse of the spaghetti tower would occur because they could not hold up to the weight of what was being pressed down on it. Well, some of our worldviews are no more stable than spaghetti towers, and the only reason we don't know is because we've never put any weight on it. And now suffering calls us to put weight on the worldview. Suffering calls us to press down and see how strong is it? So suffering in the West is first something that is treated with medication. We are told to ignore it, to not pay attention to it, and yet we are constantly bombarded with it, even despite our best advances and our best technology. Uh, suffering, uh, particularly in the West, one of the, one of the other antidotes besides just medicating it away is by, uh, by downplaying our own mortality. Uh, we believe the lie because we are young, and because we have access to kind of the eternal beautifying of youth and all these kinds of things that can keep us convinced that youth and the eternal state of youth is some picture that we can realistically grasp onto, uh, we, we never really think about our own mortality. And yet the Bible and the author of Ecclesiastes, he says it is better to go to the house of mourning. Why is it better to go to the house of mourning? Because you could confront it with reality as it actually is. And in the West, we don't like to go to the house of mourning. We don't like to go to funerals. We keep funerals very clean and, and dressed up. Uh, we often don't go to funerals if we don't have to or if we don't really, really know the person because it's sometimes just too painful to be reminded of the fact that humans die. Humans don't live forever. So what do we do in light of the fact that we aren't going to live forever and this life isn't the final resting place? Because it can't be 
because we know many who've come and gone. What do we do with that reality? So in the West, we, we try to pretend like mortality is not a problem, and we have very nice hospitals which look like sophisticated hotels. And we don't really try to confront death, and we are very clean and very sophisticated about death so that we don't really have to deal with the question. One of the other things that uh, we do to uh, deal with suffering, especially as Christians, is we unfortunately, I think, import other worldviews into a Christian worldview as a means to answer the question. Now, here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you are looking at death around you, and you're a Christian, uh, you could answer that question in a, in a godly way, in a way that is undergirded by scripture, or you could, unbeknownst to yourself, answer it in a way that the secular world around you would answer the question. And, or maybe an atheistic world or maybe a Buddhist worldview would answer the question. But nevertheless, we've answered it in a non-Christian way. And thus, we ourselves are dissatisfied with the answer. And we think it's because of Christianity that we are dissatisfied with the answer. In the, in the Christian worldview, the only right answer to suffering is that suffering points us to eternity and a good God who does not have this world as a final status. It's not in its final form. We are being transformed. Creation is groaning for a, new, a newness, a recreation. And suffering reminds us of the fact that the job isn't done. It's still in process. And if we answer it in a non-Christian way, we could answer it like this. Well, we suffer because we are simply depraved and God is so far beyond us that he doesn't particularly really bother with our suffering. And so even though there is a God, and even though we do suffer, God is, he's, he's un, unmoved by our suffering. He doesn't care really for our suffering. And so we answer it by saying, just God's so far beyond us that suffering really isn't a problem for him. And that would be an answer, but it's not a Christian answer. That's, that's called deism, where you believe that God is this far removed being who's created the world, set it into motion, but doesn't really meddle in the affairs of people. Well, the Bible doesn't let you have a deistic worldview because the Bible says God listens to your prayers and that he hears the cries of his people. Or that before the Israelites cried out for help when they were enslaved in Egypt, that God was stirred for compassion for his people and moved to bring about their rescue from enslavement. That God is not a, de is not, is not a deistic God. He is an intimate God. Yes, just as sovereign as the deistic God would, pro would purport to be, but actually in a caring and loving and affectionate way oriented towards his people. So if you answer as a Christian, uh, you answer the Christian question of suffering in a deistic way, you will be left thinking that God is this cold being who has no concern for humanity and that it is because we are so sinful that God actually says suffering is exactly what we deserve. And he's just coldly pouring out his hatred upon us. But that's not really a Christian answer. The Christian answer to the problem of suffering is that while God is a God who is sovereign and holy, and while we have fallen short of his glory, we have, not fallen, we have not fallen so short of his glory that his image is no longer within us. That we don't have a vestige of God's good creation still in each and every one of us. And so human beings, despite the fact that we are fallen creatures, we are still God's creatures and he still cares for us. Which means he still exists in this world in a way to uh, benefit us. He still pours out his blessings upon us. He still causes us to benefit and be fruitful. And he, he rains down blessings upon us, whether we are his children or we are not his children. And he does that because he is a loving God who cares for his people. And then we say, well, what about the suffering? Well, the suffering is a reminder of the fact that although we are cared for by God, 
we are still under the curse of God. Now, the curse is not God's fault. The curse is not God's vindictive personal attack against humanity. The curse is a result of the fact that we have sinned and fallen short of God and all creation has fallen with us into sin because that's what sin does. And rather than God, let's say, propagating the curse through all of humanity, God actually in redemptive history is seeking to redeem humanity from the curse. Now he is the one who puts the curse on humanity because it is the just punishment for sin, but he's also the one who sets about undoing the effects of the curse by means of his very personal and intimate power. So the Christian worldview would say that when we see suffering, it reminds us of this, that we live in a world which is cursed, not in some vague uh, uh, way that evolution would say suffering is just part of life, but we would say the curse is part of life, and the curse reminds us of the fact that there was a time before the curse and that there will be a time after the curse. So in a Christian worldview, when we suffer, we remember the fact that the curse is this middle, unnatural state for creation, and that before the curse and after the curse reminds us of the fact that God actually designed it in the beginning to be good and lovely and a place that does not experience suffering. So Christianity would say that evil is a result of the curse, but that God cares and that God, in his benevolent care, allows us to experience suffering to draw our mind back to the reality of the curse so that we can look once again to him and beg for uh, mercy and forgiveness and repentance as he offers it. It, it, it wakes us up and snaps us out of our, our, gay, our days. Uh, if you like, uh, one of the ways that you can, you can conceive of this is suffering serves for believers as a kind of smelling salt. Uh, if someone comes into a hospital unconscious or goes to an EMT un as an unconscious person, one of the first things they're going to try to do is wake this person up to see what condition they're in. And one of the ways they do that is they can do what's called a sternal rub where they put a ton of pressure on the chest and they rub back and forth to try to see if they can snap this person awake. And one of the other things they'll do is they'll crack a stick of ammonium salt and they will put it under the nose and they will have them inhale ammonium. And they will, uh, if they're uh, able to wake up, ammonium will wake them up. And they will become alive, alert, awake, and aware of their surroundings if they are conscious and able to be revived. And smelling salts is, is like suffering. It, it wakes us up from our unconscious rest and it brings us to mind the reality which we're actually in. So we can do a damage assessment and so we can look for help. That's what smelling salts do. That's what suffering does for a believer. And suffering does that also for non-believers because it wakes them up and makes them realize I am in a desperate state that I need rescuing from. So suffering then brings to mind a number of questions for the believer and a number of questions for the non-believer. But for the non-believer, the atheist, the one who rejects God, the only question that suffering really brings to mind is, is why does it feel bad? <laughs> because if you're an atheist, you, you don't really have a category for evil. So you can't say when you experience suffering that this feels wrong or that was wicked. You can't look at Pilate killing Galileans and you, can, and you can't say Pilate shouldn't have done that. Because if you're an atheist, well, Pilate did it because Pilate was strong enough to do it. And so even though it feels wrong, because it is wrong, the atheistic worldview has no answer, right? It's the spaghetti tower that collapses at the first sign of weight. Because as soon as the problem of suffering is raised, the atheist is reminded that they can't even raise the question to begin to answer the question because there is no problem of suffering, because there is no such thing as suffering, because there is no such thing as evil. But the Christian can actually press deeper into and actually ask the question and I think sufficiently answer the question, but they have to do it carefully because there's, uh, there's a number of missteps that we often, we often step into. One misstep we can get to 
is thinking about suffering in the way that the Jewish people here who ask the question think about suffering. I want you to notice that they raise the question to Jesus and Jesus perceives their question and possibly their explanation for the question. So if you look at verse three, or sorry, verse two, he asks the question, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So if, in, in, one, in one sense, you can say that if, there, if there's a just God and people die under his justice, that if they die worse, that means they were worse sinners. Or if they die more peaceful deaths, that means they were more, uh, they were more good towards God. And that is objectively wrong. That is the wrong answer to the problem of suffering. Sin isn't the only reason people suffer. The wrath of God isn't the only reason that people suffer. Just living under the curse can cause suffering. And so uh, this, is, this is the problem in the book of Job. Perhaps you've, you've read the book of Job. Uh, you come to the chapters where Job's friends are trying to tell him why it is that he's experiencing all that he's experiencing. And they essentially, while, while bouncing around a number of ideas, they remain on this one idea that the reason Job is suffering is because he is wicked and he is rebellious against God. And if he would only repent of his sin, he would cease to suffer. And Job, throughout the book, maintains his innocence. Whatever he might have done in his youth, it does not merit the kind of suffering he is going through. And even though he is fallen and a creature of God, he maintains the fact that he does not deserve to suffer in this way. And thus the friends maintain that he, because he is suffering in this way, he deserves to suffer in this way for his wickedness. That is a wrong answer for the problem of suffering. Uh, if we, uh, likewise today, look at someone who dies in a tragic car crash or someone who dies from a very painful cancer or painful genetic disease or someone who's just suffering chronically for their whole life, we might conclude it is because of God's wrath on that person that they suffer in such a way. It is because of their great wickedness that they suffer in such a way. Or it is because of their own sin that they suffer in that kind of a way. And as Christians, we, we just can't go there. It could be the case that wickedness begats their suffering, but it could also be the case that suffering is something un, unrelated to their own wickedness. Because as scripture would tell us, both the righteous and the wicked suffer. So it cannot be addressed by a problem of evil or sin. It has to be addressed in another kind of way. The other question which is raised is not just a question of justice, is God punish the wicked and do good to the righteous, but a question of God's providence in this world. How, how is it that if I, as a Christian, am going through suffering, can I find comfort from God in my suffering? This is, a, this is a, a poignant question. We, as people, are always lifting our eyes, not necessarily to the correct theological answer, but to the satisfaction of the answer that it provides. So we don't so much care, we, we, we do in some way, but we don't so much care about how correct the answer is. We care a lot more about how satisfying it is. Uh, a great way that you can think about this is with food. Uh, often we eat a meal and we don't so much eat for the nutritional value of the meal as we do for the flavor, which the meal and the experience which it provides for us. Now that doesn't mean we ignore the nutritional value, but a delicious meal is far to be praised and adored more than let's say a meal of canned chicken and rice. <laughs> because the meal is not only nutritious, but it is also flavorful and delicious and it's, a, it's an experience and, and we would prioritize meals that are good rather than meals that are just nutritionally valuable, right? So it is with questions and answers to suffering. We don't just want the right answer, we want one that, it, that is good, one that we can say yes to and one that we can say we enjoy and we delight in and we find comfort in that answer. Uh, we as people are wanting a satisfying answer. So how, do, how is it that God's people find comfort in their suffering? Well, we find comfort in our suffering 
by being reminded of the fact that while Jesus here points us to the final judgment in suffering, one of the things which is the obvious answer on the ground, which Jesus knows and which we as Luke's readers know, is that Jesus in himself is the answer to suffering. Because while we could provide a theologically correct answer to suffering, people are wicked and they are under the curse. While we can provide a theologically correct answer and like someone was wicked and they deserve to suffer in that way, uh, the only answer that actually satisfies is God, despite the wickedness of humanity, goes right alongside humanity into their suffering, not to go and suffer with them, but to actually enter into the suffering so he could pull them out of the suffering. And that he not only from a cold deistic place says, I don't care that you're suffering, but he actually in himself enters into our suffering so that he can tell us it's not supposed to be this way and I am making all things new and one day I will wipe away every tear from your eye and death will be no more and there will be no mourning nor crying nor pain anymore because all of the former things which have fallen under the curse have passed away and I am making all things new. Amen. Jesus is the answer to the problem of suffering. And unbeknownst to the people who raise the question to Jesus that the answer is literally standing in front of them. Because while they are asking the question, the God-man is suffering in humanity, going hungry, going sleepless nights. He's going to be beaten, mocked, and scorned for them. And he's going to provide the solution to the suffering which not only they experience, but he experiences right alongside them. And not only does he suffer, but he suffers in the ultimate way by not only being beaten physically, but being poured out uh, spiritually, eternally, and suffering under the wrath of God. For a, for a crime that he didn't commit. Every one of us could theoretically suffer an infinite kind of death for our shortness, for our, our lack of glory, for our lack of holiness before God. But only Jesus never deserved to suffer, and yet he chose to. Yet he entered into our suffering with us, and yet he provides the satisfying answer to suffering, which is that suffering is a temporary reminder of the fact that this is not our final resting place and that he has by his own life secured that as a reality. So therefore, as believers, we need to be watchful. Uh, we need to look out for our fellow Christians. We need to look out for the unconverted. And we need to look out for our own lives and souls that whenever suffering arises in our life, we are to uh, be reminded of the fact that this is not it. This world is not it. We are to wake up from our, 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 like, our, our tendency to nap. And we, we are to lift our eyes back to eternity and be reminded of this fact. And the reason I say be watchful not only for your fellow Christians and for yourself, but also for the unconverted, is because every time an unconverted person experiences reality that they can't explain, pain that they can't deal with, something they can't cope with, they are reminded of one fact, which is their worldview does not answer the questions of life, and we have the answers to the questions that they are asking. So when we, as believers, ought to pay attention to a world which is suffering and, and, and waking up to the fact that this world is not what it should be, that atheism is not the right answer, that naturalism does not provide a satisfying answer, that ethics do matter, that morality does matter, and that this world is broken and it needs fixing, and atheism does not answer any of those questions. And then they come to us in some random occurrence, either they're our friend or our coworker or a chance encounter that we find, and we hear of their suffering and we ask them, can they answer it? And then we provide them the only comfort for suffering which is possibly able to be provided. Suffering uh, produces within us, within us a hunger for new creation, a creation without suffering. 
Uh, just like someone uh, no more desires sleep than when they are most tired and fatigued. Uh, just like someone uh, loves food when they are hungry and they are thirsty and they desire water. Uh, just like someone who uh, is afflicted in this life, they will desire eternity. They will be reminded of the fact that the, the suffering they're enduring in their body and in their, in their souls is providing for them an eternal hunger for something which will remove the suffering and satisfy them eternally. You remember this encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well, where he says, everyone who's going to drink from this water will be thirsty again, but I can provide for you water which you will never thirst again. And she says, tell me, where can I find this water? And it's right in front of her. He is the prophet who can answer her question. So suffering, for us believers, is a reminder to not lose uh, not lose our gaze and take it off of his final appearing, not to take our eyes off of that final prize that we have, because Jesus is the only satisfying answer to suffering, and that suffering will be something we persist with in this life until he appears. John says uh, that we should pay attention to his coming, because when we will see him, oh, what a day that will be, where we see him, and we are made like him, and we are with him, and we no longer will have to suffer in this world. We have uh, our eyes constantly fixed on our Savior as Christians when we suffer. What about uh, those of us who are believers and, uh, and yet are not walking well with the Lord? Those of us who would have confessed faith in Christ, who are yet mired in our sin and not, not really awake to, to God and communing with him. What of that? Well, Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says it in this way. What suffering does is... It allows us to pay attention to the fact that he spares us. And if it is the case that he spares us for a time, we are so far from having a right to take his kindness and forbearance as an opportunity to slumber, but rather we ought to regard it as an invitation to repent. He says that when we see suffering and we are reminded of Christ and we are reminded of our eternal destiny, that ought to invite us to say, are there any sins that I ought to confess to be right with my accuser before I am found before the judge? Is there anything that I need to deal with so I can be in fellowship with Christ so that he will vouch for me on the day of judgment? Suffering wakes us up from our sinful state and it calls us to be reconciled to Christ and be found in him. And then we can say, well, what about those who don't have Christ, who don't have an answer for suffering? What if they die? Their death is not a comfort. Their death is not something that we can find hope in. Uh, their death is a tragedy which warns everyone around them of the finitude of human existence and the need for reconciliation. There's no real way to sugarcoat that. We might be tempted to uh, in an effort to assuage the fears of those who watch the warning which has just been fired. Uh, we might be tempted to say comforting words to people who are suffering and who have no hope of God. But the reality is the only comfort we can provide is that they ought to be reconciled to that God before he calls them home as well. Have you, have you been reconciled to this God? Do you have peace with him so that when you die in your suffering, or when you die or when you experience suffering, you are, are to be found resting with, with tears wiped away from your eyes? Can you say that that is true of you? If it is true of you, uh, there, is, there is much hope. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that is raised in this text and one of the things that we ought to be reminded of is that the manner of our death, the manner of our final, uh, final going, is not, not a measure of our wickedness or God's favor upon us. Let me put it to you this way. 
if, if you were, let's say, sentenced to prison for a crime that you committed, you go before the judge, you are sentenced to prison, and it, you're, you're going to be escorted to the jail, uh, you can be escorted rather politely to the jail. They can have you take your shoes off, change out of your clothes, put on your prison, prison garb, sign a couple of waivers so that when you get out, you can get your stuff back. And they can escort you into that jail with, with very little pain. They can get you in there, and they can get you into your cell, and you won't experience much pain on the way as you go to prison. Take, for instance, another scenario. Someone who has a heart attack and is being resuscitated. To be resuscitated from such a, uh, some, from such a experience, such a medical tragedy, uh, it will require usually the breaking of ribs, usually the numerous numbers of shocks, usually the pushing of many medications which would otherwise cause much physical damage. And yet, on the other side of that, the person who has a heart attack and experiences much pain and shaking will be awakened and will be enlivened and will possibly be able to return to a life and live a life. But the prisoner in all of the comfort that they went to prison will not have freedom in that same way. So, so it is with a believer who dies in a tragic way. They die in a tragic way, but they are welcomed home to their God who can comfort them. And so it is with an unbeliever who dies in a rather peaceful way. And they might have been peaceful, it might have been an easy going, it might have been a long good life here on earth, but the reality is that the final destination is not an enviable position to be in. And so we ought not regard the manner of going or the manner of suffering as an indication of the wickedness or righteousness of the person or their vindication before God, but rather, as Jesus here says, we ought to regard suffering as a warning shot for all of us who are on this side of eternity to be reminded once again of the reality of eternal judgment, the reality of eternal comfort, and the reality of Christ. Because as readers of Luke's gospel, one of the things that is about to happen is it is about to be made clear to us for the rest of the time that Jesus is the one who suffers. Jesus is the only one who suffers in a way that he should never suffer. And Luke is going to, in lifting up suffering to us, begin to, for the next several chapters, answer the question of suffering, not by theological treatises, not by means of many great discourses, but by just telling us about Jesus and all that he endured and all that he experienced so that we would actually have a satisfying answer to suffering. And as believers, we ought to take hope in our Christ who redeems us from the curse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, Lord, we thank you, uh, no matter how much suffering we endure in this life, that we can actually find comfort in our suffering. Lord, we thank you that whatever ailments we experience or whatever tragedy we endure, uh, we can actually have a, a comfort that we can share with those around us. Lord, we ask that for those of us who are weak, uh, for those of us who are on their last leg, who have suffered, who have known suffering, who have known those who have known suffering. Lord, would you send your spirit to comfort, to lift our souls, to provide for us rest, and to encourage us along the way. And Lord, uh, for those of us who don't know what it is to be found in you, who, when confronted with suffering, recognize that we don't actually have a good answer to that question, uh, would you uh, cause us to be found in you? Would you enliven our hearts and our minds? Uh, would you cause us to be reconciled to you? Would you cause us to repent of any sin that is left outstanding? And would you allow us by your grace to have suffering seen as an opportunity to consider eternity? Lord, we ask a strange request that you would allow us to experience suffering in this time so that we as your people could be constantly put before your face so we could be constantly reminded of your goodness 
and that you would not let us be rocked to sleep by this world, that you would not let us be deadened to our transgressions and sins, that you would not let us be found sleeping when you appear, but we would be servants watchful in the night, awake and ready for you to come, and that we would be always looking at the door, waiting for you to burst it open, and waiting to receive you and your glory. We pray this all in your name. Amen.